let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Oh God, we, we rest in your good heart toward us. You've given us your own beloved son, Jesus. What, what other good thing will you keep from us? And we thank you for your word that strengthens your people. We thank you for your ancient word that's living and active by the power of your spirit. And so we look to you this morning. We anticipate your work among us as we sit together under your word. We pray for hearts that are tender and receptive, hearts that long to hear you speak. And we pray for our friends here this morning that may not have trusted Christ as their own Savior. We pray that you would work, Holy Spirit, in their hearts this morning for your glory. We depend on you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Every so often I hear someone say that their life is such a mess that they feel shame and they long to isolate. A few follow-up questions inevitably reveal their assumption that everyone else has it together. They're the only one that's a mess. They say something like, I come to church and I see all these Christians with neat and tidy lives and I feel like a gigantic failure. If people here knew the depth and darkness of my sin or the endless pain train of my circumstances, then they'd run. And this tempts individuals to run from friendships with other Christians and to avoid gathering with the church to worship the Lord. And it leads them to hide from their relationship with God. Too much shame to bend the knee to pray and to sing to the Lord. And here's the truth that I try to deliver in moments like those. We are all a mess. That's kind of why we're here. Christians gather in local churches to worship a God who saved them from their sinful mess and is saving them still. This is Jesus' point in Luke chapter 5. The Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling against the disciples because of this. They say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Disciples, why are you and Jesus drinking and eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus steps in and answers. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is called the friend of sinners for a reason, not because he tolerated sin, Certainly not because he joined in sin, but because he spent time loving sinners, calling them to repentance. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We don't make it through a world that's been ransacked by sin unscathed. Our stories, every one of them, are hard fought filled with the happy and the hard things of this life, filled with our own sinful struggles, filled with absorbing the sin struggles of the people around us, and filled with health challenges and trials of various kinds. We don't make it through this life unscathed. And so we gather here as a group of people who walk with limps and bear the scars. We do not celebrate messiness. We celebrate and we rejoice together that Jesus has saved us from the mess through his own brilliant righteousness. And though we still struggle with sin, absorb sin, and endure sin's effects in the world, we strive to live lives of stubborn repentance in the power of God's Spirit.
Now, 1 Samuel chapter 20 is a mess. David's life is a mess. It's lost steam and it's leveled out. And we're staring week after week at the darkness that surrounds David and that billows up from inside of David. And so perhaps as we tromp through the final lap of David's life, God can teach us something about our own lives and the way we sometimes feel about our circumstances and our own struggles with sin. Of course, the mess and the weariness of life in a world broken by sin is not the last lap. Unless, of course, you're here this morning and don't believe in God, don't believe in any sort of afterlife that God has arranged for us through Christ. If you don't believe in God, if you don't trust Christ, then this world is a final weary lap waiting for something, honestly, that's going to be far worse. But if you throw yourself on the mercy of God in Christ, then you can stubbornly hold on to this hope. It's the main idea for this morning. The steadfast love of the Lord will never fail, and His kingdom will never end. No matter what appearances your life takes, despite the appearances, despite the brokenness, despite the mess, the steadfast love of the Lord will not fail, and His kingdom will not end. Well, let's take this story one scene at a time. First, one worthless rebel. One worthless rebel. This is verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. Sheba takes the, takes the stage in chapter 20. We're told he's a worthless man. Literally, he's a good for nothing. He's the son of Bichri. He's a member of the Israelite tribe of Benjamin, which is the same tribe from which King Saul came. Sheba, we're told, blows the trumpet and calls all of Israel to abandon David and his tribe, Judah, for their own tents. And all the drama that we're seeing here forewarns us of the division of the Israelite kingdom that's to come. In fact, even the same language is used. We have no portion or inheritance with David. Now, this story picks up right where we left off last week in chapter 19. There was a division between the 10 northern tribes and David's own tribe, Judah. And their division is over who has more of a share in David. And in the middle of that rift, Sheba capitalizes. And Sheba appears to be convincing. Verse 2 reports that all the men of Israel, meaning all the men of the, the northern tribes, withdraw from David. It's unbelievable. No sooner has he cleaned up the last rebellion than another rebellion has come to his shore. And this time, though, Judah... David's own tribe stands steadfastly with him. But that's all. The rest of Israel at this point follows Sheba. And Judah, the tribe, alone departs the Jordan River with David to escort him back to Jerusalem. Now, sometimes God brings hard things in our lives in such rapid succession that we're tempted to question him. We stand up we draw, we, we wipe the salt water from our eyes, and then another wave wallops us before we've barely caught our breath. This is a moment that David is processing in 2 Samuel 20. I can almost imagine him saying, again, Lord? Can this kingdom sustain one more civil war? You and I ask these questions too. Can our heart sustain another betrayal? Can our family sustain one more loss? Can our finances sustain another hit? Can our marriage sustain another blow? The succession sometimes feels so rapid, it disorients us. But then God permits another worthless rebel through the door. God brings another hard thing to our shore. And we're left to either lie down and give up 
or to stubbornly declare our hope in the steadfast, unfailing love of God and His eternal kingdom purposes that will not fail. That's why after a brutal recitation of the the hardship of his life, the writer of Lamentations says famously in Lamentations 3.21, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, we just sang. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord alone, his presence, his relationship, that's my portion. I have no need for anything else, and I will hope in him. That's one worthless rebel. Now in verse 3, 10 widowed women. When David arrives back in Jerusalem, he's left with the tragedy of the 10 concubines he left behind. The 10 women who were mistreated so horribly by David's son Absalom, in a scheme to secure the throne. Look at verse 3 again of 2 Samuel chapter 20. David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house, and he put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. I'm not sure what the good solution is for David at this point. He's downstream from a couple of bad decisions And this maybe is the best that he can do. He's sinfully married more than one woman, and then he adds concubines, that is second-class wives, to his household. And then he leaves these ten behind to care for his house while he runs from Absalom. So David provides for these women the rest of their lives, but he does not go into them. He doesn't spend time with them. They are protected and provided for, but left alone. They're living as if they are widows. And on one hand, it's a disheartening end for these women, except for the fact that if they trust God, if their faith is in Him, then this is not the final chapter for them. Though it may be hard for them to believe God's love is unfailing and His kingdom purposes are unending. These 10 women aren't at the mercy of circumstances. They're sojourning through a life marked by crippling suffering Yet God offers to make all things work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And that's not a cute phrase to hang on a wall. That's an anchor to our souls when we go through the crippling suffering of this life. Nothing. God will work all things together for good for those who loved Him and are called by Him. This is a God who, whom nothing will separate us from His love. A God who is near to the brokenhearted. A God who sees suffering in such a way that he acts. This is a God who is near to you this morning. A God tenderly offering to make that burden just a little bit lighter. If you belong to Christ, then the hard things of this life will not outlast his plans for you. His good plans for you will far outlast all the pain and suffering of this life. So in Psalm 36, 7, we can say, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light 
do we see light. To survive circumstances as dire as these 10 women, the only way to do that is to walk by faith. The only way to believe that prayer in Psalm 36 is to walk by faith, trusting the Lord's power and His goodness despite any circumstances. So one worthless rebel, 10 widowed women, and now two or maybe three wicked generals, verses 4 through 13. We have three generals here. I thought about making a chart to help us understand all these proper names, but honestly, I couldn't even envision how to do that. So three generals, Joab, who's been David's faithful general for a long time, has just been replaced last week by Amasa, who was the general of Absalom's army. And then the third general is, is Joab's brother, Abishai. Okay, so these three are on center stage. David is far more decisive during this rebellion than he was during Absalom. As I said, he's just replaced Joab with Amasa, for, and it's a punishment for Joab for killing David's son Absalom, but it also helps to reunite the kingdom. Well, he thought. David gives Amasa, his new general, three days to gather the fighting men of Judah to go after Sheba. But Amasa fails this assignment, either because he's dragging his feet or because he can't compel the men of Judah to fight. David may also assume that he's defected to the other side. This is Absalom's former general. So David doesn't waste any time. This rebellion is too, uh, this rebellion will be worse than the last rebellion, according to David. Look at verse 6 of chapter 20. David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do more harm to us than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. Abishai and Joab understand warfare. Abishai knows how to get things done. This is the man who volunteers with David so many years ago to go into Saul's camp. And when they get into Saul's camp in the middle of the night, David and Abishai and one other, Abishai is the one who says, let me take Saul's spear and I'll run it through him and this problem will be solved. Abishai knows how to get things done and David needs a thing done. And he's not turning to Joab, so he turns to Joab's brother, Abishai. Abishai, get out there and stop this rebellion. And so Abishai grabs the foreign mercenaries who are fighting for David. He grabs the soldiers loyal to Joab, and he grabs David's mighty men, this choice group of loyal soldiers and bodyguard for David for so many years. And Abishai leads this group in pursuit of Sheba. Now Amasa shows up six miles outside of Jerusalem at the rock that is Gibeon, and he's got to be unsure of himself. Though we give him credit for showing up, he's just failed the king, and he walks into Israel's camp. And when he arrives, it's, gener it's General Joab who rises to greet him. And Joab's wearing a soldier's garment, a tunic with a belt around it, and in the belt is a sword strapped to his thigh. And whether it's unintentional or intentional, as he walks to meet Amasa, his sword falls to the ground. Look at verse 9. And Joab said to Amasa, it is, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. And so Joab struck him in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he, and he died. Now, this is another rival general murdered by Joab. This is exactly, almost play-by-play, play, what he had done to Abner, Saul's general. 
Now, as the men loyal to David pass by, right, Abishai and Joab head for Sheba. They leave a man behind who stands next to Amasa's body. And as if to say, you'll wallow in the ground like Amasa if you don't follow Joab. There's a silent threat to every mighty man who walks by, every one of the foreign mercenaries, every soldier loyal to Joab. They walk by Amasa's dead body or dying body, and it's a warning. You'll end up like Amasa unless you follow Joab to pursue Sheba. But the spectacle of a general writhing in pain along the road impedes progress. And so Amasa's body is thrown into a field and covered with a garment. Now these two or three, if we include Amasa, who departed from David in order to side with Absalom, these three generals, wicked generals, live according to their own passions. Their bloodthirsty hunger for power consumes them. May God's Spirit humble us in the face of this kind of sin. It's more subtle, but our hunger for power and to see a rival toppled is a clear and present danger for all of us. That's why we demand respect from other people. Not desire respect. It's why we demand respect from other people. It's why we're enraged when our authority is questioned. It's why we're offended when our sin is confronted. It's why we gossip and slander to preserve our standing or authority or power. We must take hold of ourselves or we will be swept along by passion instead of guided by Jesus. Jesus says very clearly to Pilate after his arrest, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, if my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would fight. But they're not fighting. We can't confuse a combative spirit for a courageous spirit. Joab's brash swaggering is not biblical courage. As we see the world around us increase pressure on God's word and God's people, we must disarm angry passion. Throughout the division and the moral insanity of the last four years, the vision that we've tried to return to as a church family is do not compromise to the culture around us. That will be one temptation for Christians to compromise to the culture around us. Neither can we combat the culture around us. Instead, demonstrate the courage to hold fast to the Bible. Stand firm and speak the word of God with love. Be willing to bear the cost for doing so. Stick your head up out of the foxhole and pose the question to that friend. Ask the question. Our thirsty culture needs the living water of God's Word. And a church that's stuck in compromise or stuck in combat will not be able to do it. I'm not calling on us to compromise. I'm not calling us to silence. I'm calling us to watch out for the angry passion that can grow and build up in our own hearts. We'll come back to that in a minute. The fourth section here is one wise woman, one worthless rebel, 
10 widowed women, three wicked generals, and now one wise woman. Verses 14 to 22. What David feared would happen, happened. Sheba retreats into a fortified city, and there he waits. And verse 14 reports that he's made his way all the way to the north, all the way to the tribe of Dan into a city called Abel. But word must be spreading throughout Israel that David is decisive this time. David's not messing around this time because when push comes to shove, it seems that no Israelites have joined Sheba except his own clan, the Bichrites. Not even the Benjamite tribe is joining him in Abel. It seems to just be his own tribe or his own clan, the Bichrites. So Joab and his men arrive at Abel and they set up a siege around the city. They build a mound against the city's walls. They construct a rampart and battering rams and they prepare to rip open Abel's gates and tear down Abel's walls. And as the city watches and waits, one wise woman steps to the wall and calls down. Look at verse 16. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen. Tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And Joab came near to her and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. And then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. And then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask at Abel. And they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord. Joab, why would you tear down a city that's been constructed by Israelites, that is the home of Israelites? She's provoking him to be clear about what his intentions are. And Joab's ready to deal. Look at verse 20. Joab answered, far be it for me, far be it for me that I should swallow up or destroy. Ha! That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Just give me a minute. We'll take care of it. It's funny that she identifies herself as a peaceable woman. But she succeeded in sparing the lives and the livelihoods and the homes of her people. And Joab has the traitor that he's been hunting. And so he blows the trumpet and the army returns to Jerusalem. And in verses 23 to 25 tells us who David appoints to serve him in his inner circle. Now, this woman wasn't just wise. This woman had the courage to act according to wisdom. In a moment in history where women didn't serve in roles like this one, this woman steps forward and faces the problem squarely. She courageously calls on Joab to reasonably respond, to compromise in a way that will serve them all. And she protects King David by stopping the rebel Sheba. And she protects her own people by stopping the bloodthirsty general Joab. May such reasonableness and shrewdness and courage mark all of us. Now, returning to the application from the last point, you may say, Tom, your head seems to be in the sand. You seem to be misreading the moment, misunderstanding the times that we're living through. Now is the time to fight our kids, our schools, our country. I see what you're seeing. 
and I feel what you're feeling. But could it be that the clear-headed reasonableness of Christians might prevail in a culture of blustering outrage? Just think about the contrast. Could it be that the courageously gentle answers of Christians might silence the wrath of those opposing Jesus? Could it be that the love in the hearts of Christians and the prayers on the mouths of Christians for their enemies might be used by the Spirit to save some of those that we long to see in the kingdom? There is a way of speaking. There is a desperation that may reveal in Christians a lack of confidence in God's power or perhaps an overemphasis on this world over against the next. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we read in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. This is not cowardice. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Who is them? Those who should persecute you for righteousness' sake. Those who would cause you to suffer for the sake of Christ. Have no fear of them. Do not be troubled by them. But in your hearts, verse 15, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The New Testament does not call us to silence. It causes us to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And then qualifies, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Not compromise to culture. Not spending our times combating culture. Not marked by the angry disposition of the wicked generals. But the courage to stand firm, proclaiming the hope we have in the gospel willing to live out those gospel convictions no matter the cost. One worthless rebel, ten widowed women, three wicked generals, one wise woman. Every so often, I hear someone say that their life is such a mess they feel shame and are tempted to isolate. Only one person has made it through this world unscathed. And he longed to see sinners come to repentance. What marked messy, sinful King David out as a man after God's own heart, we should remind ourselves of this, was his repentance. The Holy Spirit tenderized David's heart. That did not produce a perfect man. It did produce an earnest one. And maybe you've never bent your knee to Jesus. Perhaps you've never acknowledged your sin before him. And children, I'm speaking to you as well. Have you ever told God how sorry you are for turning against him, for rebelling against him, for disobeying him? And for Christians in the room, we do not outgrow repentance. Repentance should ever mark us. 
Because a Christian marked by repentance enjoys the truth of Joel 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Don't make this external. Give me your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. He turns back from bringing judgment in the face of repentant hearts. And instead of judgment, God, overflowing with unfailing love and unending kingdom purposes, will pour out His blessing. Joel 2.26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Jesus comes and he begins to clean up the mess of our lives through his spirit, through his word, through the work of the church together. But the mess persists, doesn't it? Our struggles with sin, our struggles with living in a world that's been broken by sin, it continues. Your messy life is not unique. It is unique, but you're not alone. All our lives are filled with this kind of mess, this kind of residual from sin. And it will be this way until Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. On the day that Daniel the prophet, through the power of God's spirit, predicted in Daniel 2, 44. And in the days of those kings, speaking of a time in the future, still future, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Put your hope in God. His love is unfailing and His kingdom purposes are unending. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful for the hope that You've delivered. I pray that You would keep us as Your people courageously committed to Your Word, willing to bear whatever cost may come for standing firm and holding fast to Your truth. Would You empower us by Your Spirit to stand together as Your people to lovingly proclaim the truth of your gospel. I pray that you would guard us from the anger that marks our age. Fill us instead with joyful confidence that you are reigning and all the earth will soon see your reign. Keep us near the cross, sheltered, where we're ever mindful of our sin and ever mindful of the mercy that we've received in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.